Welcome back to the Snowmobiling Podcast. This series of Snowmobiling Podcasts, we're going to be talking with the OEMs. Our first podcast series is with Yamaha. And I have with me today, John Blazer Jr. of Yamaha Motor Canada. How are you doing, John? Good, Gord. How are you? Excellent. Uh, we're finally getting some great weather. Uh, we're in the spring now. Uh, exciting time for Yamaha. Uh, you've released your 2015 snowmobiles. Uh, but first, before we get into that, I want to talk about you and um, basically how you... Uh, you got into snowmobiling and your ultimate job at Yamaha Canada. My dream job at Yamaha Canada, and it really is. Well, uh, I guess like most of us in the industry, we started snowmobiling at a young age. My father put me on a skidoo when I was really young and couldn't get me off it. And all I would do was burn tanks of gas, and that was in the 70s. So I'm not that old, but I did definitely ride in the 70s. Um, I didn't really get involved in the industry until about 91. Again, my father was the program and marketing director for the OFSC, and they were shooting some ice safety videos back in 91. And um, I helped out with production of the, of the video. And later on, that led to um, some work with the OFSC on their SledSmart team and eventually managing their safety campaigns across the province. Um, and that led to a job at Snowmobiler Television with uh, Langer and the guys. So I got a great opportunity to work for Snowmobiler Television a couple of years, and um, it was a ton of fun. Um, I got to co-host a show, do some production, do some sales work for them, and uh, the, the office was about 10 minutes from my house. So you can imagine a job that's in, you get to test ride new snowmobiles, fly all over the place, um, all expenses are paid, and no commuting. It was like a dream job, because I'd worked in Toronto for a while for some software companies. Um, and the commute just really drove me away. And so we're at Snowmobiler TV and actually had a project sled planned with the Yamaha. And I got a call from Chris Reed one day and I thought he was just going to say, uh, you know, your warrior's ready to pick up for this turbo project. And it was in fact, was calling me to talk about a job opportunity at Yamaha. And I was shocked. It was an unexpected call. And um, it was a fascinating opportunity for me because, I mean, I, I have some engineering background through school. That was always what I wanted to do was work for an OEM. But I also had a lot of blue blood in me. Um, I'm a huge motorcycle enthusiast, and I've had a number of Yamahas. My first two motorcycles were Yamahas, so I have a little bit of tuning fork heart. And I always had this dream to work for a Japanese OEM, but never thought it would happen because it's very extraordinarily difficult. So I got the call. I was really torn. I got this great job in Barrie where I'm flying all over the place, test riding snowmobiles, going on TV. And now I got this call from Yamaha for this dream job to help with product planning, to help with future development. But it's in Toronto. And, of course, the decision was about a minute long, and I said, I, I can't not do this. I can't at least not try. And I knew Chris Reed. I'd worked with Chris Reed even on those videos. When, we, when In 91, we were doing the No Second Chance videos. We'd borrowed some of those from Chris Reed at Yamaha. And so I knew him, and we worked together on the WaterWise program, the water, Watercraft Safety Program. Yamaha was the first sponsor with our Wave Runners back then. And so I had a pretty good relationship with Chris, and I guess that's where he learned about my passion for motorsports and thought I might be a good fit to try and actually become his successor, to replace him in product planning at Yamaha. So it was a huge honor, it was a huge surprise, and it's kind of ironic that it comes full circle, and I had the opportunity to do what I always dreamed to do as a little kid. So I jumped at it, of course. And that was 10 years ago, Gord. <laughs> that was 10 <laughs> years ago. So I, many things happened since, but uh, it's been quite a, quite a roller coaster. So you got you started with... Uh with uh, really uh, the, the, the OFC uh, SledSmart team, uh, Yamaha, um, how are you enjoying it now? Like, uh, you're, you've been busy, especially this past year, you've been very busy. 
I can say that there hasn't been a day or a week where I'm, I've never left this building with my job done. Uh, it's been really busy and it's gone by really, really fast, but I'll tell you something, it's um, a special place to work. It, the, the commute is very difficult. It's a, it's a hundred kilometer commute each way, but it's not just the job, but the people here are so cool. Um, we're really fortunate, we're really, really, really fortunate um, to work with a great bunch of people on a really good product. So I can say it's been, it's been a phenomenal experience. I love it. Great. Um, okay, so let's get down to the meat and uh, potatoes here. Um, highlights of the 2014 sleds. What were the highlights? Well, the big news, of course, SR Viper. Um, it was a big year and a big challenging year, a lot to do. We continued to adapt and update some of our YMC Japanese built models, but I guess the big news was the supply agreement with Articat and the eventual development of the SR Viper. And that, you know, that supply agreement kind of predates Viper, of course, with the SRX120, but um, the big news in 14 were the Vipers. There were five new models. Um, we had an RTX Deluxe, we had an RTX SV, we had an LTX-137 Deluxe, we had an LTX SC with some floats on it, and the one XTX, the one crossover. No mountain sleds, um, just mostly trail and crossover. And, of course, it was a controversial year a little bit, but it was phenomenally successful. Um, of course, we continued to produce all of our Japanese-built models, including the Apex, the Vector, and the Venture, and, and even the RS Viking. But I guess the big news really would have been the Viper, because it was new. It was finally bringing out something new. Okay. Great. Um, 2015. Huge year. Expanded models. More models. What can you tell us about them? 2015, even a bigger year. Yes, expanding upon the supply agreement um, and introducing more snowmobiles. Um, you know, MY15 was not just busy because we increased the trail lineup, but we also added three new mountain models and four new spring-only early deposit um, LE models that didn't exist, exist in 2014, so very busy. And you know, I, I really should take my hat off to both the Articat teams and our Minocqua R&D teams. Those guys put in a ton of overtime to get that 15 lineup that we have now. I mean, there's a ton of components that had to fall in place, and I don't, you know, I feel bad for the durability guys that had to do all the extra, and, and the suspension settings and the clutch settings, there was so much work going on, so... 15 is a big year. That was, uh, I was following you uh, and Chris uh, this year on your uh, your post and, and stuff like that. I'd never seen you guys travel so much. <laughs> yeah, uh, and you know there was a, we didn't travel in the last couple of years travel was down a little bit, but this past year and a half, two years, travel has been triple, probably triple. Um, a lot of us are getting our elite status with Air Canada, so uh, always a pro and con there, you know, you get some pr privileges of your status, but you've got to spend a lot of time in an airplane to get them. Yeah, um, okay, on that point, um, can you discuss uh, generally what happens at a test calibration product strategy meetings in Japan and North America now too um, at, at, these, uh, at these meetings? Well, I can discuss some of it. Some stuff I probably can't. Um, but I, I mean, an example would be engine development. That engine um, had been around for a while. You know, in 08, we brought out the Nitro. And um, so the engine durability, the history of the engine has been very good, but it's in a new chassis with a different ECU. So you can imagine a ton of work going into fuel mapping um, and even little things people don't think about. The position of the engine inside the chassis to get the correct center of gravity and the, and the effective balance point. I mean, our engine is definitely a little heavier than a two-stroke, but it's also a bit lighter than the Suzuki Twin. So uh, the center of mass is much different. I can tell you a, a lot of effort went into handling of the Viper um, that we wanted to be very flat and very predictable. So that has an impact. That 
that effort, um, effectiveness from clutching, you know, how aggressive are we going to clutch? There's a big difference between clutching for hit feeling versus clutching for acceleration. Um, believe it or not, a, a sled that is faster in a 400 meter race is quite a bit smoother. It doesn't feel fast, but is often quite a bit faster. Nitro, the focus was more hit feeling to give it really strong pull feeling to take advantage of that, that three cylinder engine's um, torque. But the negative side of that really heavy hitting feeling in that weight transfer um, that Nitro had was that it didn't always go around a corner as well. And we wanted Viper to be the polar opposite of Nitro. We wanted it to be an extremely good handling snowmobile. So a ton of time on clutching, handling, suspension calibration um, to make it flat and predictable and, um, and accelerate very quickly as well. Sure. Durability, of course, you know, some people look at our durability riders and say, wow, what a great job. I know from experience that that is not the best job. Can you imagine thousands of miles of durability testing regardless of the weather? So minus 40, get out and do durability. Freezing rain, get out and do durability. So those guys also were hard at work. And, and on the product planning side, well, it's kind of completely different, you know, from testing, really. Um, our product planning responsibility, at least in Canada, is to convey the Canadian customer's desire and needs, and then try and convince engineering to build what we want. Um, so, you know, I mean, there's a ton of analysis going on, all the retail sales data, the market trend data, the usage requirements. Um, we even study geographic anomalies. We look at event snowfall. Um, and then we, we go back to Japan, or we'll, we'll have discussions in North America about what each sort of market wants. And we spend about half of our time confirming what our customers want. And then we spend about half of our time determining what the most effective compromise is. Because, as you can imagine, the Americans sometimes want different things than the Canadians do. And the Europeans have different requirements. And the Russians definitely have different requirements. They're a much more utility-focused environment. So the second half of product planning is to get together and try and find some common ground, find the most effective or even better, the most profitable compromise. So, you know, people always say, you know, why didn't you do this and why didn't you do that? And sometimes it's to save money, but sometimes it's just to find a compromise that we can sell in multiple markets. You know, you can change suspension calibration between Canada, US, and Europe, but you really you start changing components and then you lose the, uh, you lose the, the effectiveness of uh, common platform, common parts. Right. Um, okay, um, so, um Talk about uh, when you first started with Yamaha and, and Chris Reed told you two things. Oh, yes. Uh, product planning development. Yeah, I remember, I remember this kind of funny conversation. There was two things he said to me. He said, um, well, there's three, really. There was, uh, if you ever wonder why we didn't do something, you wonder, why wouldn't you do this and why wouldn't you do that? First thing you ask when you get to the job. Quite often, it's to save a nickel. But the real funny one he told me was um, the menu of items. And this made sense to me, having been a big motorcycle fan. There's three things on the product development menu, on the, on the engineering menu, that everybody wants. You've probably heard him say this. Lightweight, durability, and low cost. Light, cheap, and durable. But you can only have two. And you've got to pick which two you want. And that's that compromise point coming back in. So if you want light and cheap, that's really easy. But it won't be durable. And if you want light and durable, that also is very easy. But it won't be cheap. And you've got to find where you're willing to compromise. So that was one of the big things I had to learn and find that compromise point. What was the second thing he told you? Ah, uh, the second thing he told me. Well, he said very frankly, he says, um, just so you know, uh, 
you know, this business is all about uh, future development. Here's your confidentiality agreement. And uh, you should know that two people can keep a secret, but only if one of them's dead. <laughs> and it's funny, it's but it's really it's true, so Gord. True. Yeah, it's so true. And yeah. with the internet today, boy, oh boy, you know, rumors travel fast. Everyone's always asking me, what's coming next? What's coming next? Yeah. Okay, so let's, uh, let's get into the 2015 lineup. Tell us about the more Vipers. Yes, absolutely. So I guess we'll start with the short tracks. Um, we had last year two, two 129s, um, a Deluxe and an SE, and they're back. They're both back. Um, last year, the Deluxe was only available one color with an unpainted tunnel, and this year it's available in two colors with both of them having painted tunnels. We think the painted tunnels look better. And we're quite excited. You know, the, the Procross platform allows us to paint. Articat's facility can paint all the tunnels. And that's uh, been more of a challenge for us in the past in Japan. So it lets us apply graphics to places that were un, you know, atypical for Yamahas. So we're getting more aggressive with graphics packages. Um, and the deluxe models, you know, when they originally came out, we talked about them being kind of a standard model because they didn't have a painted tunnel. But in reality, in fact, it was Chris that pointed it out that a deluxe has a big windshield and a heated seat and a tunnel bag. And that it's actually got more value in some ways for trail riders than an SE. So why would we call it a base model? It positions it incorrectly. So it should be called a deluxe model. And historically, deluxe has some significance for Yamaha. So we all, we're calling all of the large windshield heated seat variations deluxe models now. So RTX has a deluxe and a 129. The SE model has the Fox floats. They're our lightest sports sleds with a float freeze up front. Um, and then we have a new model this year that's spring only. If you didn't put a deposit down by the end of April, you're not getting one. And there are super premium spring only models. And typically they have at least one feature not found on an SE or a Deluxe, a performance feature. And the RTX LE is, is kind of the best example and probably the best value because you're getting a super premium shock package. You're getting Fox Float Evolt X's up front you know, that have um, compression and rebound damping, the double piggyback reservoirs. You're getting the race skid frame in the rear, the reinforced, heavily gusted array skid frame with a set of um, Fox Zero Pros, fully adjustable Fox Zero Pros. So you combine that with the orange and blue paint scheme. That's a cool-looking scheme. <laughs> pretty cool. Very un-Yamaha-like, un maybe a little bit too. You know, we could, we could talk about that a bit too. I mean... We, we know that early deposit customers um, are getting, you know, they're getting their money out in the spring and they really want something unique. We surveyed a bunch of them and, you know, Skidoo's probably done the best job of packaging up spring models with X package and, and being very successful with it. So we looked at them, we looked at what Articat's doing, what Players are doing. We wanted to build a model that not only stood out for its uh, technology, its function, its features, but for its look, to look different. Um, we call them sort of a, bit, a little bit of an attention seeker model. So it's, um, but it's, it's going to be basically a variation of our cross-country race. That's very, very close to what they'll race in cross-country. Okay, a question that I, I, I always wanted to ask. Um, can, a, can a dealer actually order a spring model and sell it in the, in the fall? Or does the customer have to no, order? No, they're supposed to get deposits for every one of them. Um, and we do have dealers that, you know, they'll... They'll have a customer they know wants one and maybe not available, but no, we, we do insist on a deposit. Right. Uh, that's kind of the key to the program. It doesn't make a lot of sense for a spring-only program if someone came in the fall on our different program and get the same sled. But otherwise, there's no reason to buy in the spring. So I, we kind of look to it saying that um, you need several reasons to buy in the spring. You need exclusivity. You yep. need something that isn't available in the fall. 
you need um, something from a spec point of view that might not be available. Like those Evil X's and that race kid frame, they're not available on FE models in the fall. But you also need some value. It's, it makes no sense if I can just take an SE and turn it into an LE for, the, for less or the same money. It has to have a little bit of added value for the, for the money. And that's what it, they definitely do. Okay, and the, the SR Viper RTX DX LTX 141 model. Well, we have the 141 models. We also don't forget the 137 models. So we have all, three variations of the 29s, three variations of the 37s, um, both the Deluxe, the SE, and the LE. In fact, the 137 gets two LEs this year. There's an early build model with a 1.25-inch ripsaw two. But we also wanted to, we have some people with 137s that do go off trail once in a while, so we also put a 1.75 on the early build. You get, kind of get either or. Uh, and then the XTX version, the 141s, there's two new 141 models, and crossover is pretty much the biggest category in the East. So last year we only had one, the XTX SE with the floats up front and the 1.6 Cobra. This year we have three. So the SE returns with float threes up front and a 1.6 Cobra track, so a, you know, a fairly versatile crossover sled. Um, and then we built one that's a little more trail-oriented with a 1.35 Cobra and it's called the STX, but it gets a big windshield, it gets a heated seat, it gets a rear rack, it's much like a cross tour, and that, that bag in the back. So we see that sled being really popular where guys are putting on big miles. They do an occasional two-up riding. We have an accessory one plus one seat for it. So, you know, that's a pretty big market as well that, you know, someone wants to ride two-up, but only occasionally. They're not riding two-up all the time. They don't want to compromise and buy a dedicated two-up sled and then lose some of the handling and performance elements they're just riding two or three times a year with someone in the back. So, you know, a one plus one makes more sense. So that, we think, is going to be a really hot seller combined with the big windshield, great for cold weather riding, big rail line running, big northern Ontario and Quebec riding. Harsh conditions. Yes, yes. The, the true enthusiasts, you know, that, that are putting on 15, 20,000 kilometers a year. And then we have um, where I really wanted to push the crossover segment we have an XTX LE, and this one's unique. This one's different. It actually runs a pro climb chassis with the uh, vertical steering post, the mountain steering post. It runs a mountain ski, not a tuner ski. Uh, it also runs a 2.2, a two and a quarter inch um, power claw track. So it's got a big lug, 141 inch. They're all uncoupled skid frames, but we wanted an XTX that would really perform in deeper snow. We know our customers are using the 1.6 Cobra in deep snow, but quite often they're changing it out for a 175 or two and a quarter or two inch. So we built this, um, Articat really, you know, it's, it's, it's one of their ideas, and we thought we'd adopt the model. It also has the 40-inch front end. So it's not quite as narrow as a mountain sled, but it's not quite as wide as a trail sled. So it really fits in that deep snow, boondocking, crossover category. It's not going to be the best trail sled of the two and a quarter. But for the kind of customer that does more than half their riding off-trail, northern Ontario, northern Quebec, and they just, they just basically use trails to get to the riding area, this is going to be a perfect snowmobile. Awesome. That's great. Uh, tuner skis. Tuner skis. Yes, we have had tremendous success with tuner skis. Launched uh, a few years ago on Nitro, um, the original concept to reduce darting and give people the flexibility to control the tuning of their handling. You know, um, there's a lot of opinions about skis, and they're very, very subjective. And, and how a ski works depends not only on the snowmobile it's being bolted to, I hear lots of guys running different skis on different skid or different platforms, but also how you've set the sled up. So, you know, if you, when I, over the years, interview customers, I listen, I say, well, how do you ride? How do you like the snowmobile to perform? 
And some people really like zero understeer. They jack up the limiter strap, they put a ton of ski pressure up front, they put a big CNS Pro or a big heavily carbided ski. They just want to turn the bars and always turns. But the compromise is ski lift, right? You're going to get a sled that has no forgiveness in the front end, you get a lot of steering effort, and you get a lot of ski lift. Other people don't like ski lift. They like a more neutral steering sled or, or a little bit of understeer. There's people that are, are searching for flat handling, and therefore they want to unhook the snowmobile a little bit. So the tuner ski is, has the ability to give customers a wider range of adjustment. If you want to lock the front end down and jack the limiter strap up and put the ski pressure down and have zero understeer, you can go very, very aggressive with your carbide setup. You can run a set of six-inch square runners on each side of the tuner ski, and it will not push. Um, conversely, if you like uh, more weight transfer and you're focused on the acceleration, you can drop the carbides at the front, loosen the limiter strap up, change the suspension settings, and have the feeling you want. So the advantage of the tuner ski isn't just anti-darting, but the flexibility to change the handling characteristics to what you like without buying a new ski. However... The older tuner ski that was found on Apex Vector Venture Nitro didn't adapt well to Viper, mostly because the center of gravity was so different for Viper. It doesn't have as much ski pressure over the spindles. So we were getting more understeer with the old tuner ski. So we redesigned the tuner ski. We gave it more keel. We didn't just give it more keel, 5 mil more keel. We changed the profile of the keel to make it even more predictable. And if you just add keel, you start to get unpredictability in handling, too much ski lift and so quite a bit of effort, still a bunch of, bunch of carbides available for it, but really um, adapted specifically for the Viper. What's interesting is that while an Apex tuner ski doesn't work so good in a Viper, the Viper tuner ski doesn't work so bad on an Apex. So we're finding out um, that the newer tuner ski is going to be maybe more adaptable to other models. But what a fantastic ski. And, and it's available on all the shorter tracks, the 129, 137, and all of the XTXs except the LE with the mountain track. All the mountain sleds will get the single keel mountain ski. So that's a, a Yamaha accessory now. It is. Back. Yeah. Can you give a retail price? On which? Tuner ski? Yeah. I believe, ooh, you're going to quote me now on the web in front of me. I believe they're $69.95 each. They're very competitively priced. Um, you know, they're a lot less expensive than even our older OEM skis. So, you know, we're finding guys are spending a couple of hundred bucks on carbides for their sleds. And, uh, you know, there's no one perfect solution, Gore. Not everybody's going to like the tuner ski, and not everybody likes snow trackers, and not everybody likes CNS Pros or Pilots or whatever they're running. So I think, um, I think the, the tuner ski we see as an advantage and accessory because it gives you flexibility. If you don't like an aftermarket ski, you, you're stuck. You basically got to sell it. If you don't like what the tuner did out of the box, there's about 50 combinations you can adjust to to change it. And you can make them incrementally. And you can change them with snow conditions. I've, I've had spring snow where I, I ramp up the carbides on them. And then in icy conditions in the, in the middle of the winter, I don't. I, I soften them down a little bit. So it's kind of cool that way. Great. Okay. Um, SR Viper Mountain Sleds. MTX. Uh, that's a big step for you guys. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, we, we haven't evolved the mountains for a little while, the mountain sleds. And, and this snowmobile, it was probably one of the biggest challenges to build. Um, but it was also one of the biggest surprises, honestly. Um, it is exceeding expectations everywhere we go, every demo. What's really interesting, I, I spent some time in Revelstoke this year at the Yamafest event and watched. I almost go every year, but this year I wanted to see you know, who was riding our snowmobile demos. Uh, quite often in the past with Nitro, it's been Yamaha guys wanting to try a turbo or 
somebody who's interested in Forstro. But now, every customer from every OEM is in our booth. We had lineups. I needed to borrow one mountain sled to do a shoot with Rod, snowmobile TV Rod, and I couldn't get one for an hour. They were gone. Like, literally, we didn't have enough snowmobiles. So while it was an enormous challenge for us, um, and there was some invested time to make sure it handled properly, it's, it's already been a fantastic success. And I mean, we know four-stroke, uh, four-strokes are not hugely popular in the mountains still. Um, we know they're a bit heavier, but the weight gap is really narrowed now. I mean, we're wet weight to wet weight within 45 pounds of some of the two-strokes. In fact, if you account for snow accumulation, we're getting to within 20 or 30 pounds of a comparable two-stroke. Now, when you add boost, when you add an accessory turbocharger, the weight difference really starts to go away. Um, you know, we've got an MPI accessory kit we sold in the spring in part of our early deposit program for, for Western high elevation use only. And that will be available in the fall as an accessory. And it just changes the game. It's such a competitive advantage. And yes, there are guys out boosting two-strokes, but you really, no one will argue the four-stroke durability when you boost. I mean, we've got guys running around on apexes and, and nitros with 25, 30,000 miles on them. Engine's never been apart, boosted from day one. So, you know, when you, when you go four-stroke, one of the benefits you'll find if you're going to put boost on is you're not worried about engine durability. And, you know, we, you know, we run into the backcountry and there's places like Turtle, you know, at Revelstoke where if you do have an engine failure or some kind of failure, you're spending $1,500 in a helicopter to get back down. You're, you're helicoptering your sled down. So there's kind of a relief, a peace of mind knowing that basically the only way I'm going to need a helicopter ride is if I wad the thing. So that's interesting. And, and what we found too, um, demo riding, the comments coming from customers that were unexpected Probably the number one comment from competitors' customers riding Vipers is they can't believe how well it handles. The handling was the most surprising. I would have thought it was the power with the turbo, but it ended up being the handling. They, I can't believe how well this handles. I can't believe how light it feels. I can't believe how predictable it turns, how it, how it, will, it will side hill and cross front without pitching you off. And Nitro wasn't nearly as good. This thing is, the Viper is extremely predictable. And it's very easy to transition from side to side. And then I guess the second biggest comment would have been power. I mean, the turbo is just, you know, 180, 190 horsepower with the kind of throttle response that ours provides is impressive. It's fun. You giggle under your helmet. I mean, I'm sure you were out snowshoe ride them, and they're just absolute hoots. So, so yeah, we're, we're, we're very excited. We've got, um, we've got four models. We've got a 153 base model with coilovers that retails for $13,299. It's the... Best value really in the business, certainly for four-stroke. Um, we've had a, I was surprised at how many deposits we had in Canada. You know, 162 is quite popular as well, but we didn't have that coilover base model. And we're finding that dealers and customers are using the base 153 as a turbo platform. Because you can get a boosted sled for about 16 grand now, 180, 190 horsepower MPI boosted snowmobile for $16,000. And that 180 horsepower makes 100, it makes 180, at 10,000 feet it still makes 180 horsepower. So there's a huge advantage over any naturally aspirated engine at elevation with any kind of boosted system. So customers are saying, yeah, you know what, I'll, I'll buy a base model, I'll put my own track on, I'm going to do that anyways, I'm going to extend the rails anyways, I'm going to add boost. But of course we also have an SE version with floats, it's a bit lighter, but a bit more money, um, comes in two colors. We have a 162 SE, uh, same thing, float threes up front, and then we have that spring only 162 LE with the orange and blue, and of course it gets a premium shock absorber, that Evol up front. 
Um, so we have a pretty good mountain lineup for our first year back in the fray. Do you, do you have a spring order for mountain spice? LE. That orange is only available in the spring. Of course, our deposits, our spring deposits, included all of the models. But um, only the LE blue orange is exclusively available in the spring. So if you don't put a deposit down, you're not getting one. It's a limited build. And uh, let's talk about uh, racing. Uh, the past four years, you've had some really good success. Well, let's talk about um, Snowcross, too. I mean, uh, you mentioned it earlier, and, uh, you know, we... People are wondering if we're going to enter back into snowcross racing. We have focused on cross country for a while, and we and we've had some success in the hill cross. And there are some reasons for that. You know, I mean, snowcross gets a lot of uh, publicity, but one of our challenges with snowcross, and we've had some success in the past. You know, we won a an Eagle River race uh, championship. We've had some success in um, CSRA and the RHA. So, but the challenge with snowcross is the investment. It's a huge, huge investment, and we were only running in the mod classes. And I think the point really would be to have a proper stock class vehicle. And to develop a platform to win snowcross at the stock level is tough because you really are building something unique for snowcross. You're never going to adapt that technology to the trail, no matter how much people say, oh, yeah, we, we trail ride our race sleds. No, they don't. I mean, I don't think Skidoo even sells their race sled for the trail anymore. You'll see the odd one out there, but they just to build a winning snowcross sled is so far removed from trail riding that doesn't really benefit the bulk of the market. Whereas if we invest in, in, in cross-country racing, much of that technology or, or um, information that we learn from cross-country racing does trickle back down to our trail sleds. And for hill cross riding, the same thing goes with mountain snowmobiles. So we're, you're seeing our investment for now in cross-country and, and hill cross for sure. And uh, you know, on the, on the hill cross side, we've been doing it for about four years. You know, in 2011, we started with the nitro, kind of a regional effort. We didn't have a turbo. We were in the mod class, and we didn't qualify for a race. Um, in 2012, we expanded the nitro team with um, with Cable Wilford and Cody Melbourne. Um, both of them qualified at Jackson, which was pretty amazing. Uh, and Cody was the first guy to put a four stroke over the top at Jackson Hole. I mean, that's isn't that a, that's a crazy race, right? That's a, that's a steep hill. Let me tell you, it's, and, and uh, going up it is, it's difficult. The challenges. So we celebrated that, and um, and Cable got a third at Schweitzer. So it, you know, it was an interesting year. It was sort of a, a, a first year of getting some qualifications. In thirteen was really the first year for our factory team, but it was still on the nitro platform. Platform, platform, platform. Cable, Cody, Ty, Chad, Jorgensen, and Colton Malberg. Um, but interesting, last year we qualified at. 13 total classes in the first race. That's a big thing for us. Um, and we had uh, all four guys qualify for Jackson. And of course, Chad went over the top of Jackson in his rookie year. And, and in fact, I talked to Rob this morning a little bit about it. And we qualified at Jackson in 75% of the classes we entered. Not bad for still kind of an early effort with not a lot of history behind it. But I guess the big news really was in 14 when we started running some kitted Vipers. And wow, what a transformation. So the platform and the chassis is just so good. Um, but I guess in the beginning, still quite a learning curve for us. We didn't even really know what skid frame to try, what would be most effective. You know, they tried 141s and 153s and 162s. And um, it wasn't until that improved stock race at Jackson that we got our first win. And that's kind of like a championship win, if I understand. It's a one-of-a-kind kind of deal. And Gavin did get us that win. So that was the first four-stroke to win at Jackson in, the, in, in a class, really, improved stock 700. Um, and then Chad, Gavin, and Nathan qualified in almost all of the classes they entered now. So Viper Platform getting us um, into all the races we wanted to. 
And at the end of the day, I think we got a third in mod 700, a fourth in mod 700, and a ninth in 800 mod. And that's really where we want to win, you know, that 800 mod class where everybody's turbocharging. Even the two strokes are turbocharged. So there's no benefit, there's no advantage for a four stroke turbo in that class because the two strokes, of course, turbo as well. And then overall in the year, we got a first place, we got two seconds, we got five thirds. That's, um, you know, that's six podiums for us. Not bad for our first year with Viper. Eight fourth places and six fifth place finishes. So all in all, um, quite a banner year for us, you know, in racing. That's a dramatic increase in, uh, in, in <laughs> racing success, that's for sure. Absolutely. Okay, um, let's go to the, uh, the carryover uh, Yamaha models, uh, Apex, sure. Venture, uh, Vector, Phaser. Um, the, the Nitro's retired now. Um, what can you talk about uh, the carryover models? Well, um, I guess the biggest news for our you know, YMC models, we call them our Japanese-built models, is the addition of the Yamaha Performance Damper on Apex, Vector, and Venture. It's part of our early season deposit program. That's not available as an accessory, so you had to spring order a sled uh, to get one. And it's, it's caused some controversy. It's, a lot of questions are being asked, what does that do? And um, it's an interesting story. It's a convoluted story. It was developed for the automotive industry, but it was developed by a, a, a Yamaha RV engineer, a recreational vehicle engineer, uh, Mr. Sawai. Uh, Mr. Sawai's developed a number of patents for Yamaha. Uh, he's a pretty smart guy. He's, they nicknamed him Dr. Sawai in Japan. Um, and it's a very, very interesting piece of technology, and it comes a little bit from MotoGP and our understanding of chassis dynamics um, and it basically works as a, as a chassis damper. And the auto industry, you know, people say, well, is it, you know, is it successful? We sell about 15,000 of these a month to the auto industry. And, you know, with the way the economies of scale are today, they aren't buying anything that doesn't work. They're, you know, they're stripping stuff off cars if they can. So it's a pretty cool piece of technology. Um, and what does it do? It, it acts, uh, you know, the chassis on a vehicle is effectively the largest spring on the vehicle. And... It dampens that spring, and you know historically, you would look to try and stiffen a chassis through technology, through casting, through welding types and dissimilar metals. Um, to to it, the, the idea was the stiffer the chassis, the more you could isolate energy to the suspension dampers, because that's the really the only damper on the vehicle, suspension dampers. And the more you could direct chassis energy at suspension dampers, um, the more effective they would work. And reduce some of that chassis vibration. But the problem is that by increasing the stiffness of the chassis, really all you're doing is increasing the frequency of the energy coming through the chassis spring. So, and that has all these other, other side effects, uh, one of them being rider fatigue. And we learned really coming from the motorcycle program, especially at MotoGP, that there was a limit to how stiff you could make a chassis before you started to go slower, especially with motorcycles where you're leaning them over. So we started to soften chassis and then use different technologies to absorb chatter, chassis chatter, out of the front and rear ends using different damping technologies. And then we applied it to automotive. And now, the very first time, we're starting to apply it to snowmobile. And most of us looked at these things and went, mm, I don't know, you know, I don't know. And then, Gord, we rode them. And it's just one of those shocking things that you get off it. You have to ride them back to back. To really go, oh, geez, something's going on here. And I remember being in the Minocqua Test Center with our head engineer, Jim, and, and we kind of got off an apex on a really kicked out trail. And not something you'd normally really try and go fast with an apex on. And we both got off and said, I think that's the fastest I've ever driven around our Minocqua Test Center. 
and it was on an Apex XDX. Like you just, the sled was so planted, you started going faster and faster into corners. And, and I found I could get on the gas earlier coming out of corners. I wasn't getting the lift. It just felt so planted. And you know, there's a video, I'll give you a link to a video online that sort of describes what it's doing in three dimensions. Pretty wild stuff. Um, GPS still available in all those all those places? Yes, absolutely. Power steering, and uh, you know it's funny um, with Viper. At first, we were thinking, you know, the steering effort's a lot lighter. But as we start to ramp up carbides, and as we move into some of the mountain versions with the tall bars, some of us are saying, eh, I wouldn't mind a version with power steering. But uh, I'm not going to say it's coming. But we certainly, you know, we're, you know, it's it's a very cool technology. Once you've ridden with it, it's hard to live without. I've been riding Apexes for a long time, and I rode a Viper this year, and I must say, unlike Chris, I really, I have trouble now going back to Apex. I agree to you. <laughs> I, <laughs> I miss the power steering. Yeah, it's the only yeah, thing. Yeah. Uh, and I'm sorry, that's not true. I miss the engine. The engine is, and the four-cylinder, the four-cylinder engine is just something so special, but I, I can't live with the ergonomics anymore. I, I really love how the Viper sits and how I sit on it and how flat it lands. Okay, uh, touring sleds. Um, solo touring, fully loaded sleds. Seems to be very popular this, uh, this, uh, in, in the past. Um, where's Yamaha with uh, their touring sleds? Well, you know, solo touring is an interesting thing. It's been around for a while. I mean, our competition certainly has taken advantage of that a lot longer than we have. And um, we focused more on two-up touring models for dedicated touring. And, you know, the, we're a Japanese company. We're very process-oriented. That's how we get our QDR, our quality durability rider. So we're a little bit slower to react sometimes to certain market trends. But, yes, we, we do acknowledge uh, that that is a growing market and growing trend. And so we have a number of Vipers that can uh, take in accessory seats, but really we've got one new one for Christine, the the STX Deluxe that we talked about earlier. It's a 141-inch skid frame that you can easily put an accessory seat on. It's got the big windshield and the heated seat and the tunnel bag and the rack. And so we see that as our sort of first foray into that one plus one category where we understand. I mean, a lot of customers want the two-up capability, but only once in a while. So they don't want to compromise by buying a dedicated two-up touring model that it doesn't maybe have the performance they want 90% of the time when they're not riding two-up. So we think that STX will really, really be good. We see huge sales now from the STX and the Deluxe and all those things. Uh, Phaser, Venture, any new, new improvements? Where are you going with that? No, you know, we haven't had a chance to invest more into Phaser. It's an anomaly for us. It's, a, it's such a cool engine. I mean, it spins over 11,000 RPM. It's a 500cc four-stroke that makes 80 horsepower. <clears throat> and the biggest, the biggest surprise for us is how it survives. I mean, we don't have easy engine failures at all. The guys are boosting them to 140 horsepower, and they still don't break. And, you know, that's pretty impressive for an engine that will hold 12,000 RPM across the lake for 22 miles at wide open throttle. I mean, fairly high-strung engine. Um, but no, we haven't had a chance to really update it. And that's too bad, really. It's kind of unfortunate because I think the chassis are holding them back. I'd love to put that engine into another chassis, if you know what I mean. But we really just haven't had the chance. We are so overwhelmed getting the three-cylinder stuff working. And we know that's the bulk of the market. The 130 to 150 horsepower, that's, the, that's 80, 90% of the market. So we're going to continue to focus on that for at least a little while longer. Got to look where the dollars are. Yeah, for sure. Uh, new accessories this year. 
Yes, we, you know, we added a ton of accessories last year for Viper. Um, you know, it was quite interesting to see how Viper customers were buying more accessories per unit than some of our Yamaha customers. Not really because the vehicle is less expensive, but we think the type of customer it's attracting. We are attracting more competitor customers, and we are look, guys are looking for more bling, more of the anodized or painted bumpers. Um, so we brought a ton of new stuff for Viper last year, everything from windshields to graphic wraps, even the DuPont Hifax, you know, that, that crazy high mileage. Du I, don't, I don't know of anybody that's worn a pair out yet, Gord. <laughs> They've been out for two years. So that's available for Viper. Um, but in this year, the, the big news really from, from a new accessory point of view would probably be the MPI Turbo, the high elevation kit for the Western riders. And uh, I don't think we've finally established the accessory kit pricing. It's going to be much more than the early deposit spring program pricing, which was about 2500 bucks. But um, that's the big news, is accessory boost, you know, um, that we're standing behind, you know, that we're supporting. And, jeez, uh, you know, a boosted Viper's a lot of fun, I'll tell you. Yeah, I bet. Okay, so let's get to the hot button issue here now. <laughs> Um, we'll end the conversation here and you can tell us, um, let's talk, uh, about the mutual sharing agreement. It's almost 15 months now since you released, um, uh, the information on this mutual sharing agreement. Um, and I went and did a little bit of research here and, um, when it was announced and, uh, on Chris Reed's Yamaha sled bog blog, um, forum, uh, February 20th, 2013, his blog post, Cats Out of the Bag. 80 comments on that, and that was a couple days later. He kind of went dark for a couple days, and then he had 80 comments. Um, what was it like, those those days? Because you had, you had to know that, you know, you have a ton of loyal Yamaha, you know, buyers sure. in the past, years of years of that, what was it like at Yamaha during those days? You, you, you had to know it was a backlash. Well, we are, of course we knew. I mean, we were excited. Uh, we didn't really, we took all of it with a grain of salt, Gord. I mean, the internet is rife with people who, the most vocal person on the internet is going to be someone who's not happy. And we knew, we knew going in, we'd have a ton of brand loyal Yamaha people that just couldn't find this fathomable. But we did not catch us off guard. We knew. In fact, the blog post was written to kind of entice some comments to get the conversation flowing. And, and you know Chris's blog is a pretty cool platform. We are very transparent. And that's very difficult for a corporation to be transparent, to post positive and negative. I don't think you'll find another manufacturer doing that. They, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll usually find them posting only positive things. Well, that's not reality. That's just vetted marketing. To be truly the customer's voice, to engage, is to be transparent. And yeah, people aren't going to like it, but we knew that. So, I mean, I had, Chris and I both had customers phone us, friends of ours, uh, very loyal Yamaha people, and say, how could you do this? What are you thinking? I mean, I'm offended. I'm, I'm upset. I'm angry. What is wrong with you? Why? How dare you do this? And, you know, I talk to them for a little while and talk about business and, you know, it makes sense in the new economy and I don't care. I'm not listening. And so I, I said, you know what? Have you ridden it? No, of course not. I hadn't ridden it yet. So, well, why don't I take you for a ride before you make up your mind? 
are you okay? Are you open to coming for a ride? And I did. I organized a little ride in Halliburton for four or five of the most vocal people in Canada that were not happy. And, uh, of course, when they saw the machine at first, they said, well, it does look pretty good, but angry. I mean, some people, I had two people that didn't want to ride it. That didn't show up that day. But the guys that rode it, we went for a couple of hours, and I brought my handy iPhone with me, and I said, do you mind if I just record your comments? Because you could see them busting to talk about it. And we, I mean, they'd stop. They, I'd stop to say everything good, everything's easy, there aren't no lights on, no engine issues, and, and they would all start talking to each other. And you couldn't get them riding again because the conversation was so heated. And it was amazing to see the transformation. The complete switch, the 180-degree turnaround by these people who couldn't believe we'd done it saying, wow, I can't believe how good this snowmobile is. And I said, that's why we did it. It is a very, very good snowmobile. So once you've ridden it, we, we know now, as you've probably looked on the latest posts, that we're not seeing these comments anymore. Not really. Not to the same degree, not the same level. Most customers are coming around. They understand why. But there still are a few, for sure, that want what's being coined on the internet, the phrase, the pure Yamaha. And we know that. We acknowledge that. And we have not stopped developing um, on the Japanese side, uh, this is kind of, you know, it's a measure to buy us some time. It's a supply agreement with Arctic Cat. Um, they were looking for engines. Uh, we were looking for a stopgap on chassis. It made some sense. We were already selling the SRX120 engines for a couple of years, and it worked very well. It had huge success. And, you know, SRX120 is a great example of not being able to build it on our own. We just, we'd never hit the price target. We just can't sell enough of them to do any volume to get the price down. So... That's what it's really all about, is getting something to market in volume and sharing R&D and sharing development. I mean, engine development is extremely expensive today. The EPA regulations are quite strict. It's even two strokes. Very, very, very expensive to beat, to beat EPA and be even remotely durable. In fact, that's their biggest challenge. They can just squeak under EPA with direct injection, but the reliability, especially with the bigger pistons and 800, it's tough, right? Whereas the four-stroke can fairly easily beat emissions and have incredible durability, but we suffer somewhat of weight penalty, and the, the design costs, the four-stroke, are quadruple what a two-stroke is. So many more parts, so much more complexity of the system, and, and the cost of the engine itself is more. So it, it, it made a lot of sense. You take one of the best chassis companies in the world. I mean, you think about the evolution of Articat's chassis and their ability to react quickly through their race programs and focus Focus 80% of their manpower and efforts on chassis development when, when in the past they really weren't developing their own engines. They were buying them from a supplier. And so that allowed them to, to create an incredible wealth of expertise on chassis development. And same as Skidoo buying engines from Rotax and, and Polaris buying engines from Fuji. You know, I mean, Yamaha was one of the few in the past that did both chassis and engine development. And we are engine experts. And that kind of overshadows our chassis expertise. We're a much more limited in our chassis knowledge than, say, someone who's a dedicated chassis company. So the marriage to us made so much sense, and we were so excited. And it benefited not only in the chassis and Viper, but I think we're gaining benefits on being able to react more quickly. You can make changes really quick now. Articat is so fast at making changes, and we are benefiting from that. And we are so good at QDR, but that comes at an expense of long, slow processes. So where I can imagine our long process frustrates them, but they're benefiting on the quality side where you know, that we're giving them an engine that's, that's 
virtually have to flee. Okay, John, uh, can you talk about uh, how, does, how do you set up uh, your assembly uh, plant uh, for the uh, mutual part? Well, good question. I mean, I'm in product planning, so I don't get involved directly in the manufacturing specifically, but I can. you can imagine the challenge that we've probably had. Um, Yamaha, like most Japanese companies, fairly process-oriented. That's how we get our quality and our durability. Um, but it also makes it uh, difficult for us to change quickly. Um, and Articat, of course, as we mentioned earlier, far more adaptable to change. Um, but that adaptability really did help with the implementation process. Um, so as I know, as far as I know, the, the Yamahas are run down the line separate uh, all at once. And it makes sense from an efficiency point of view. Um, you'd run all the blue hoods at once, right? Um, mostly because we've got some different parts. We're running our clutches, um, so you want to make sure on the assembly process that everything's done correctly, and it's easier if all the parts are staying every step coming down the line. We don't want to be switching every third or fourth sled between clutch parts or suspension parts. So, yeah, there are some similarities, but, um, yeah, I believe the line is stopped and started up just for Yamahas, and you run a, a whole whack of Yamahas, and they'll go back into each patch later. Great, and um, uh, so, so both both products are, are built on the same line per se. Yes. Okay, uh, talk about how, how Yamaha oversees the final product for quality control. Well, of course. I mean, we have our own quality QA standards um, and our own process, and we continue to work to improve our quality and durability regardless of where the product's made, whether it's made in Japan or it's made in Articat. So... I don't have all the details on our assurance process, but uh, yeah, we have a, a fairly rigid one, and um, we're eyeballing everything that's going down the line. Um, anything you can tell us uh, about the future? Oh, uh, well, remember that second piece of advice CR gave me? Yeah, okay, so we're not going to go there, right? I, I, <laughs> no. I, uh, I, I told you. Okay, so uh, that's it, John. I, I really appreciate it. Uh, that was a great conversation. Some, some more added in, input to what uh, you would normally get. This concludes this episode of the Snowmobiling Podcast. I'd like to thank Yamaha Motor Canada's John Bleacher, Product Manager for Snowmobiles, ATVs, and ROVs. Coming up, we're going to have the representatives from the other manufacturers, so you can stay tuned to that. Please share this episode with your friends. And you can subscribe to the Snowmobiling Podcast via the Snowmobiling Podcast Facebook page or through iTunes. And you can just uh, sub subscribe to uh, Snowmobiling Podcast, click subscribe, and you can also share that episode once uh, you do that. And you can uh, have all these episodes delivered right to your smartphone, tablet, computer. And remember, you don't have to uh, be connected to the Internet uh, when you take uh, uh, this uh, podcast with you on your uh, smart device. You just download it and then uh, play it in your uh, car stereo, your headphones, uh, take the beach, cottage, wherever. So this is Gorda Van, host of the Snowing Podcast. And stay tuned for further episodes.